Hey there, yeah, doing another, pretty much have an all-day talk radio show going on the last couple days, just interrupted by brief interludes, and then I just keep going on about something, not too much more, I think I pretty much exhausted the Hitler topic. Why are you even talking about that? Why are you even talking about Hitler? The fact that you even feel the need to, like, make a point about Hitler tells me something's wrong. Something is wrong. I'm noticing just some strange, I don't know. I've had the phrase in my head lately, today, by lately, I mean very much lately today, managed entropy. I don't think I invented that myself. I'm going to assume I didn't come up with that myself, but it popped into my head today. I don't ever remember thinking of it. That's tricky sometimes, especially as a creative person. If you like sometimes a phrase will come to you and it sounds familiar, but it sounds good. And when that happens to me, if, I, if I'm if i not sure if I came up with it and it's important enough or I'm, I'm going to use it for something, I double check. Like even if I like it, I, I at least want to know, did I pick that up? Did that, that come from a friend? Managed entropy. I won't take credit for that. I'm sure somebody's come up with that combination of words, and I probably did hear it somewhere. I don't love the word entropy. I used to hear people use it way back when, and I never knew what it meant. It just sounded, uh, seems like you could say what you're saying in, with a better word. I think people just like the word entropy, but here I am using it. But basically, you know, entropies, I, I guess it refers to things falling apart, things just kind of decaying letting things, things being let go. and But a managed entropy, I don't believe would be a terrible approach right now. I mean, I think that's what a lot of individuals, I think that's what a lot of families are doing. Is I believe, And I mean, some people live this way all the time. But I think more people right now are kind of forced into this position as families, as individuals, where they're basically, if, if, if things are kind of falling apart, you don't want to just let it happen suddenly. You want to kind of let it gradually happen. You kind of get adjusted to each new phase. <laughs> and uh, I don't think that would be a terrible idea societally right now. But you could never campaign on that. Like if you were a politician and you were like, my entire platform is managed entropy. Things are falling apart, but we're going to do so with grace. We're going to do so with grace. You, know, you can't really sell people on that. You think about like what people respond to the most, even when it's not true, but you think about what people respond to, which is like, we got, we got a bright future ahead. The economy is looking up. And I'm going to ensure that it keeps going up. And we've established ourselves as one of the dominant world powers. We won that war. We're going to build. I promise that if you vote for me, we will build this country up. I just don't know where we could build. I don't know I don't know what more we could do. And it, it doesn't and when I say like managed entropy, things are falling apart, so let's try to do it with a certain degree of deliberation, a certain amount of control. Yes, a certain amount of grace. You, I mean, I think you could campaign on that, but you would have to market it as something else. You would have to be very clever in your phrasing. And maybe people are doing that now. Maybe that's what Obama bin Biden envisioned. 
I don't think so, though. I mean, I don't know what. I don't think he envisioned anything. I'm. I try to be above making Obama bin Biden jokes. But I mean, truly, like like saying that, I just have to catch myself, and I'm like, I don't think he envisioned anything. He's been on on autopilot, and even autopilot isn't functioning. I mean, he is an example of entropy. He is falling apart and before our very eyes, which is strange because, you know, I, I saw that thing with Trumpsfeld the other day, and he looks better. That's weird. Like, obviously, he always had a fake tan and, you know, fake hair, dyed hair, comb over, whatever his deal is. It's never, never terribly important for me to dissect why Trump looks the way he does. You know, <laughs> it's another one of those things. Like, it, it's like Hitler's art. Because <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like, you don't really have, like, if you're going to talk about tr- the way Trumpsfeld looks, you don't really have to point out to people, like, what's up. Like, if somebody doesn't see that, that is, uh, that's amazing. You know, I, I don't think there was any Trumpsfeld supporter who's like, what do you mean? He's got a real tan. What do you mean? What's up with his hair? Looks like a normal, looks like a a high and tight crew cut. You know, I don't think there was anybody who was saying that. But I saw, I did see that thing with him, and and he's he's he looks a lot thinner. He looks healthier. Honestly, he looks healthier all around, which is funny because like you always associate presidents with looking a lot older when they leave, and with Trumpsville, he probably would if he if he didn't have the the skin and hair thing going on, who knows, but it was just kind of amazing. I was like, wow, he's lost a lot of weight. Not in a sickly way either. (laughs) It's just, he just, he looks like he's healthier. He probably is. Not having everybody hate you all day, every day, every second of the day. But yeah, uh, Obama bin Biden is, he's fallen apart. And I don't, I don't think he had any real vision for his own campaign. I don't think he really had any vision for his own presidency. Maybe he once did. I'm not saying he never did, but I think at this point in his life, it was just at one point in his past, he had the idea in his head, I want to be president. I want to be president. So not really a Joe Obama, Ben Biden impression, but uh, I think he had that in his head and that's still in his head. It's like he got pro, somebody programmed in his head president. And so all he's been doing for the last two years is just president. But he doesn't remember what that means. He just knows that president. And now he is president, but his inner monologue hasn't changed. He's still just going around going, president. It's like, hey, how you doing, Joe? President. You know, that's kind of where he's at. So I don't know that he approached running this country, if he's even doing that, with managed entropy. Because, I mean, even though he had no vision, it's like all these people who supported him do have this progressive vision. They want to build this progressive utopia. So I don't think the Democrat Party was going from the perspective of managed entropy. I think I would like them a lot more if they did. Like, even if they coded it, even if they used some sort of euphemism or they, they even just lied, if it seemed like the Democrats' goal was managed entropy, I think I would like them a lot more. And uh, so it would just be making decisions that acknowledge that things might not be, we might not be in a position to build. And that means literally too. Like, I feel like our country should be in a mindset of maintenance, 
fixing the things that break. But again, nobody, that doesn't rally the people. It doesn't rally the people when you say, hey, we're just going to make sure things don't permanently break. And we're going to be very conscious of which things we decide to preserve. It'd be a good approach, though. Because the thing is, is that if, if things get better during that process, you can, you can branch off and go back up. You know, because I think that's where we're at. I don't see us going up from here, I think is what I'm getting at. And so if we let things kind of loosen up, if we let things unravel, but with a certain amount of control, and yeah, I'm speaking in generalities, but hey, I'm not a politician. I don't have a plan. But if we let things unravel just enough and we can kind of retrace our steps and be like, okay, this is what it used to be like. Because a lot of this will be technological in nature. But this is what it used to be like, or, you know, we're going to have to get used to weathering the elements a little more. And I don't, I don't mean the actual rain and snow. I just kind of mean, just going to kind of have to accept that we're not on this upward trajectory. But if we reach a point when we're, if we do that slowly, if the decay is slow enough, we might reach a point where we can say, hey, you know what, we can actually grow now in this direction. We found a new opportunity. It's like climbing a, uh, I mean, it's, it's like climbing a, a cliff wall. It's like a climbing gym. It's like climbing a climbing gym. It's as if you climbed up to a certain point and there were no more nubs. There were no more fake little rocks to grab hold of to keep going up. And it's like, okay, well, I'm going to have to go back down, but I'm going to do so deliberately. And while I go back down, I'm going to look for that other opportunity to go back up. Because I hit this dead end, I've realized that the only way I can actually go up is to retrace my steps. So this would just be a philosophy, but yeah, it's, it's not an exciting one. But it is the mentality that old people take on when they decide to get healthy later in life. You know, old guys who go to the gym don't think, oh, you know, my when their doctors, let's say a guy doesn't work out, he's older, his doctor's like, Mike, he's an old guy named Mike, Mike, you're going to have a heart attack. You keep doing this, Mike, you ain't going to live six months. So the guy starts going to the gym. Mike starts going to the gym. Old man Mike goes to the gym. It's a children's book I'm going to write about entropy. He goes to the gym and he's not looking to become the physical peak. You know, he's, he's, he has no illusions about becoming a peak male. <clears throat> you know, he's not in his 20s. He's not in his 30s. Not even in his 40s, 50s, or 60s. He's 78. He's 80. That guy is not expecting to get completely ripped. He's not looking to become a bodybuilder. Although some old guys do go there. Some, some freaks do become that. Usually they've been doing that their entire lives. But a guy who just starts going to the gym for his health, that's managed entropy. He knows he's falling apart. He knows he's old. He knows he has health problems. But by going to the gym, he's slowing that process. He's giving himself a chance. And I feel that by pushing right now, the United States is not giving itself a chance. It's pushing itself further and further down a dead end. 
So we should be like that old man at the gym and say, I'm just going to kind of try to manage what's going on. I'm falling apart, but I'm going to manage it. And if things do get worse, if things do get substantially worse, at least we're not going to be in for a shock. We'll gradually reach that point. Like I had an epiphany when I was a kid. It was like before I ever even thought about anything. One day I was just like sitting in my room and I thought like, oh, it's weird how the apocalypse, this is how I sounded. I've lost my accent, but I said, it's weird how the apocalypse is always depicted as this sudden moment. It's like, it just happens. I was like, wouldn't the apocalypse be gradual? Shouldn't, couldn't the apocalypse be a gradual process? We could be living it right now. I had that thought. I was probably a young teenager. I wasn't like a little kid or anything. I was very proud of myself, though. If I had a podcast back then, I would be talking about it nonstop. But fortunately, I have one now, so I can talk about it. But I, since then, I've kind of revised that to be... I do think apocalypse is a gradual process, and it's one that plays out and then it plays in, which doesn't make any sense. But, uh, you know, I think it is a process that I think we've gone through many apocalypses. I think apocalypses are, are subjective. No, but even if you're looking at like the big old apocalypse, the grand old apocalypse, the Ragnarok revelation, you know, if, even if you're looking at it that way, I still see it as something gradual, but unlike that thought, I think that it has breakthroughs, but they're scary, bad breakthroughs. But I think like something like an apocalypse is going to happen gradually. You might not even notice it. And then there are, there are moments where you do. I mean, for some people that was coronavi. You know, a lot of people were saying when coronavi hit, a lot of people were like, oh, this is the, this is the apocalypse. Oh my God. You know, and I understand that, but it's just, it's one of the breakthroughs. And only time will show us if, if it actually is or not. But it, it, coronavi to me, it's like one of those moments where it's undeniable. And not just the coronavi itself, but also just the way the whole world has had to respond to it, the way they've chosen to respond, the mess of 2020, the social, political mess. There's symptoms. But every once in a while, one of the symptoms really gets you. It really makes itself known. I don't even smoke this thing. I take just like a couple puffs here and there throughout the day. But when I'm doing these shows, I'm just hitting it nonstop. I found that doing a lot of writing recently, I was hitting it all the time too. So there is something to be said for nicotine and talking, nicotine and writing. But I've, I've realized like I'm, I'm sucking on that thing during all my episodes lately, but and I'm doing so many episodes that I might as well be smoking it all day. Here I am just, I'm, there's so much justification involved in hitting a vape. I need to just get over it. But yeah, I, you know, and the physical infrastructure is something that everyone is concerned about. I've talked to people, I've just, I've seen a lot of concern, heard a lot of concern about physical infrastructure when a building falls apart, when a bridge falls, you know, and that's all very obvious. We all know why that's a concern. And with coronavi in mind, I think a lot of people got used to half-assing things or even quarter-assing things. I mean, for the last year and a half, and, I, and again, this isn't new. 
I think we've been moving in this direction as a whole for quite a while. And a lot of people's brains reset at the start of Coronavirus. You know, I always talk about 2016 being a moment when everyone's brains reset. World War II, even though I wasn't there, you can see that historically there was, there was definitely someone hit the reset button. And a lot of people forgot what ever happened before World War II. But that happened in 2016 with Trumpsfeld. And then I believe it also happened when Coronavi hit. I bet if you were to talk to people about February 2020 and the years leading up to that, they might not be able to pick out the details. They, they might not be able to even remember unless they looked at their Instagram and have photos from a given day. I wouldn't be surprised if it's kind of a blur, if it's kind of murky. So that's something we're contending with. But I can tell you, my brain didn't reset in 2016. It didn't reset at the start of Coronavirus. So I don't think that all of this is new. I think this is part of that gradual apocalypse. Not that it's the apocalypse, but there's this sort of gradual... I get the sense that certain things are falling apart. And I don't see that as wholly bad, because I do have that sort of Ragnarok perspective of something new will bloom. Even if the dirt is blackened, something new will bloom out of that. The fact that life exists at all to begin with makes that likely. But to get away from the dramatization, you know, people are concerned about the, the physical. Well, just to finish that thought, like the half-assing it. You know, I do believe that that was escalated during Coronavi for obvious reasons because it wasn't safe to do things. And I've been complaining for the last year and a half that every service that you get is half-assed, but you're paying full price. Because even though people weren't doing the full job, you know, it's like I had to call AAA, I had the furnace guys come out. I had, everyone had an awesome attitude, but you could tell they didn't want to be there. Even when they didn't seem concerned about because like I had a guy come do some work here and, and he wasn't wearing a mask and I didn't care. This is before this is before the vaccines. This was this was like summer 2020. And I didn't care. I just said, oh, he's not wearing a mask. Oh well. You know, he didn't come in my house, but he had to do some stuff on the outside of my house. And like when he interacted with me, he wasn't wearing a mask. But it's like it's really I'm not gonna tell this guy what to do. Um so even people like that, like even people who aren't really buying into the coronavi thing, though, like I have kind of gotten the feeling that nobody really wants to be doing what they're doing. And if they are doing it, they're kind of half-assing it. And I don't even fault them for it because that's sort of the memo that went out. And a lot of people who work from home were doing nothing. You know, the stories of people just going to Zoom meetings and stuff were just a dime a dozen. I don't know what it's like now, but so we just kind of got used to the fact that we can just half-ass our jobs for full price. Or other people did, I don't know. But um, and I don't even say that accusingly. I just think that things have been moving in that direction anyway. You know, anybody who's worked in the tech industry has experienced the fact that you don't do that much work all day. Like, yeah, there are coders, there are programmers who do stuff who are addicted to it. A lot of those people are, you know, doing a lot of work because they want to. But there's a lot of jobs in tech that involve sitting around. You're basically on call. And like when somebody comes to you or something comes up, you're needed. But it's usually just a, like an exchange, an email. It's it's a message. You know, you're not really needed to do that much. A lot of project management jobs are this way. 
but you have to be there. And somebody wrote a book about it. I haven't read it, but I, I get the gist of it, which is that it's psychologically bad because a lot of these jobs involve doing very little all day and your boss knows you do very little and your boss does very little himself or herself and and your boss knows that you know that they do very little and your coworkers know it about each other but everybody still has to pretend that they're busy all day and at, at a computer job like in an office as long as your internet isn't restricted people look busy because they're just you know like when i worked in an office where everybody just had unrestricted internet access they were on facebook all day it was like the height of facebook too it was like before people started completely hating facebook so everybody had an account and it was my part of my job was to go around and do it work so i'd go i would hop on people's computers and they weren't worried i mean they weren't worried about me doing anything like they knew that i'm not they know that i'm not a snitch you know, I'm just there to help them with an issue, but I would hop on their computers and like nine times out of 10, the only active thing going on on their desktop is just they're in Facebook messenger, talking to people, talking to their boyfriend, talking to somebody and, and who cares, you know, cause they're, cause the thing is, is like all these jobs, like you can measure what they do. Like if they have an actual set of duties, you know, whether they're doing them or not. And so somebody who's not actually doing their job well, should get noticed in theory, but because people don't have that much to do or they can do it quickly. And then if they're not on salary, you know, they're just expected to be there. And so this has been going on a long time though, where it's just kind of, there's a lot of filler work, especially in tech, especially in offices with computers doing a lot. And so people in office jobs, have kind of gotten used to being doing things half-assedly. Not all of Somebody's going to be like, oh my God, we work so hard. We work so hard. You know, yeah, some people do. But it's not something you can necessarily say. Because, like, I mean, if you go to a mechanic and he does a half-assed job under normal circumstances, you're like, well, I'm not going back there. And I'm going to tell everybody I know that you suck at your job. You know, there's that sort of thing. But with Coronavi, it kind of gave everybody permission to half-ass things. It kind of gave every, and then you couldn't really even talk about it because your contact with people was limited. And that's not even just like hiring people to do things. I'm not even talking about people that you're paying. I mean, trying to deal, you know, with my mom's estate, pretty much all of 2020, you know, you couldn't get any, any you know, it's, it's already hard enough to deal with like the bureaucracy of a major bank and the customer service and just the different things you have to do. It was, it was horrendously bad to the point where I just gave up and put it off because it was just, I was like, I'm not going to get any insight. Nobody seems to know what they're doing. They're all preoccupied. They're all thinking about themselves and coronavirus, and I don't blame them. At no point do I blame people for this because I can see where it's infected me too. And I don't, you know, I don't even know that it's an infection. And it's why I celebrated Coronavi on one level, because I was like, oh, it's slowing things down to a crawl. And that's a good chance to kind of reorganize ourselves. But then the first time you're stuck in traffic after lockdown, you go, man, we didn't figure it out. Yeah, this is just one moment. But this alone just tells me we didn't figure anything out. Not that we even could have doesn't change the fact that we didn't, <laughs> whether we could or couldn't have actually figured that out, whether or not we could or couldn't have fixed traffic. 
doesn't matter because we didn't <laughs> we didn't figure it out. But you think somebody would have sat around doing that instead of like like showing how they and their kid made de deviled eggs every day. So 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 mean of me to say, but still like instead of like sitting around like broadcasting to everyone you know that you and your kid like made deviled eggs today, you could have been sitting around solving the traffic problem. Like some nerd could have been sitting around doing that. But instead, he was sitting around pretending to work while he plays a video game. And people know how to game that. But still, like, as long as you get your measurable work done, I guess that's all that matters. But then the problem now is that a lot of work isn't that measurable. A lot of it is just kind of being there. And I don't know. I mean, that's something that I, I've never enjoyed. Like... If I'm going to be at work, I like to be working. I'm that way too. Like if I'm helping somebody move, this has caused problems in my life because like if somebody's helping me move or if I'm helping somebody move, especially if they're very close to me and they're just kind of dawdling, it's like, I'm here to help you move stuff. Can we move stuff? Like if I'm, if I'm going to be spending time here, I don't want to be standing around looking at things for an hour. Like, yeah, I understand having a plan. I understand that there needs to be a plan for how we're going to do this, but they're not even planning. Like, people aren't even planning. They're just sitting around. And that sort of thing has caused issues, not because I'm the hardest worker in the world or anything, but just because if I'm in a situation where I'm there to do work of some kind and we're not doing work and we're wasting time, it drives me up the wall. Like I had a job where we, we moved into a new office and they bought tons of Ikea furniture and we spent a day just building it. And we were told that if you build all the furniture early, you guys can all go home with pay. You don't need to tell me that twice. I do not want to spend any more time at work than I have to. So, and it, you're telling me I can leave early. It's not, once you get the hang of it, like, because I decided that I was going to build one type of furniture and get, and get good at it. This is, I'm a psycho. But like I decided that there was the, the first type of desk I built, I did it and I was like, okay, that's how you do it. Okay. And I was like, I'm going to just start grabbing every box of that desk and just turn into a machine who just builds that desk. And I kind of encouraged like people around me to, to take the same approach, like get really good at building, you know, one of them, like, cause with Ikea, like the hardest part is figuring out the first one. Like, even though they give you these instructions, there's always like some little trick that you can't immediately understand. So rather than having to go through that process with every single different piece of furniture to, to spice things up, just keep doing the one that you did first. And so I was a maniac. Like I was building those and other, other people were too, most people, but there were people like, and one of them was my friend. So it was awkward, but like we had a lunch break and like a bunch of them, they were all girls and they sat around in a circle just gossiping. Like they were talking about their boyfriends and all this stuff. And I, I hundred percent snitched them out to my boss. I just, and I'm not a snitch at all, but I was pissed because we can leave early if we build everything. Do you need, do you really want to spend your time sitting around in a circle? Like talking, like you could be at home with your boyfriends that you're talking about. If you build this shit faster. And so I told my boss, I didn't like snitch the CEO, but I just told my immediate boss, I was like, hey, it kind of seemed, all I said was, it seems like not everybody's in the, here. 
because they weren't like they were they were still like up in the lunchroom and nobody nobody was telling them to get to back to work and like I, I just said hey it seems like not everybody's here and I'm never the I'm never somebody like I said like I would get on people's computers for IT work and nobody like felt the need to hide anything from me I wasn't somebody who's going to go report them for something that doesn't matter but just when it came down to like if we build all of these desks if we build all of this this IKEA gear we can go home early and the fact that people just it doesn't matter to them <laughs> it just I just don't understand it to be honest like I actually don't like it's laziness on one hand because it, it's the mentality that like if I'm having to build things I'm having to do something physical that I don't want to do and it's not fun and then you add in the fact that a lot of people I mean not everybody but you add in that a lot of people are, are just kind of like half-assing it through their work day. So when you're actually building IKEA desks, I mean, it's not like you're building these things from scratch, but it's like you're having to actually physically do something that's measurable. You're actually having to work while you're doing that. And it seemed like such a manageable goal, like in the morning, like this is me just going off, but like that morning, I remember it seemed incredibly, it seemed like we could be out of there by two. Like the rate at which we were building things, I was like, we're going to be home by two. I got a whole, I, I can have the whole afternoon to myself. But then with that lunch thing, like people had their lunch and they were just, uh, I'd rather just hang out and talk to my coworkers for three more hours. Just like, man, you know, it's, it's those sort of situations that do drive you to be a dictator. And this, there was a girl there and she was not my friend, but she was one of the people that I was pissed at. And she made a comment to somebody about like how I had like, like my, my energy was, she was, she was like one of those crystal girls, as much as I defend that stuff. Like she was this girl who had like a dream board, like at her desk, she had a dream. Like, I think that's what you call it. It's like, she had like this, this weird board and like, with like things sticking out. I don't know if they were like nails or what they were, but she, they had like little things protruding from it. And she would like take a piece of yarn and like tie it around it in this weird way. And I want to say it had like symbols or it, it was, I'm pretty sure it was what, what's called a dream board. I'm going to look that up and use my lifeline to see if this is what I'm thinking of. Yeah, more or less a dream board, I guess is where it's, it's kind of like a, a really shitty collage. It's kind of, it's, it's a girl thing where it's like, a vision board. Yeah, she yeah, a vision board. I don't know. Hers had yarn though. It's like I'm looking at these pictures of vision boards and just immediately I'm just like this is it, it's interesting that girls are so drawn to this. They're drawn to it in the same way. You know, I did an episode a little while back about how girls love day planners. Like even if they don't have anything to do, they love making a list of like what they're going to do that day. And it makes them feel on top of things. I'm not even talking shit. Do what you need to do. I have all kinds of silly things I do. I just don't relate to it. And I noticed that women in particular love day planners. They love dream boards. And looking at these dream boards, it's like, it's like, yeah, it's like little platitudes. It's words they like. But even the one I'm looking at, it's like it says it's on. And then like another piece of text in the corner says, it's okay. And yeah, a lot of these dream boards and stuff, they're like self-esteem oriented. 
vision boards. But yeah, she had a vision board and it was called a dream board, I think. I'm pretty sure that it was she referred to it as a dream board. But hers had yarn. Hers had like things sticking out of it so that she could like tie yarn between, like she took it to a whole new level. Cause these dream boards that I'm looking at right now, yeah, they're just like really shitty collages with platitudes cut and pasted and like pictures of things they like. It's like a Pinterest account on paper. If women even have Pinterest accounts anymore. But this girl, she had, yeah, Betty, come on. Um, she, she had like yarn tied through it, but yeah, she made a comment that day, like to somebody, she was like, I'm getting, you know, a really negative vibe from Eric. She's very new agey. And as much as I like that stuff, she's a good example of like how I, I don't harmonize with those people necessarily, if at all. And she's like, I'm getting really negative energy from Eric. Yeah. It's called, if we build everything, we get to go home early. That's what you're feeling. And I guess you don't, you don't care about that, but that's the negative energy you're feeling. It's, it's start building this. Do you think I like building Ikea furniture? I hate it. Let's, but let's do it nonstop. Get good at the one you're working on and do another one like that. Cause we'll get it done faster. And it's not like you'll screw it up. It's very difficult to screw up an Ikea. I mean, I'm sure somebody screwed it up. I've, I've screwed those things up, but still. Vision board. I need a vision board. Well, yeah, so I mean, people, I don't know. I, I just I just see the last year and a half, while it's been a gradual process, I think the last year and a half has been a breakthrough in terms of people's willingness to do things. And I really shouldn't even talk because I've been doing it myself. I, you know, this definitely is a self-criticism as well. And so that with that in mind, I mean, I think everybody's kind of operating from a personal place of entropy. Where we kind of sense things falling apart, you know, some people at least, and are doing their best to just manage that. And if we were to do that as a collective, I don't think it's an inherently defeatist or nihilistic approach. At least if we, if we decline into disorder, you know, at least our pockets of disorder will hopefully be a little more controlled rather than just one big moment that causes massive disorder. And last year it felt like that could happen at any, at any moment. I mean, it still feels that way to me, which is why this is on my mind, because I feel like if we took an approach of, hey, let's, let's just stop the big thing that blows up and causes a massive meltdown. And if, if things are melting down anyway, we can do it slowly and we can surf down the lava flow. That's how you do it. That's like if I was running on that campaign of managed entropy, I would frame it that way. I'd say, we're just going to surf down the lava flow. Join me in surfing down the lava flow. But, you know, we are in a position, though, where, you know, if, if you do say, I mean, this is the cliche. This is like a silly cliche people have been saying forever. But it really does feel like we're in a time where if you say up is up, someone is going to say up is down. And not even because they believe that, just because you said it or they or somebody else said it. 
it's turned into this childish game of, oh, I can't agree with you no matter what it is. Like that trick that adults play on kids where they're like, yes, you can. And the kid says, no, I can't. And the adult says, yes, you can. Kid says, no, I can't. Yes, you can. No, I can't. Yes, you can. No, I can't. No, you can't. Yes, I can. You know, it's like that sort of trick where you get somebody to say the opposite because they've gotten stuck in a program where they're just responding with the opposite of what you say. And a lot of people are doing that. And as somebody who has a little bit of natural, some natty oppositional defiance, I have to try not to do that. I have to make an effort to not be in that mindset where if someone says up is up to me, I don't say, hey, you sure up isn't down? I still manage to do that in my own way, but the difference is I'm hopefully not trying to prove that I'm right. Sometimes it's just a good exercise. But you can see with the infrastructure, I wanted to get into that because it's not just the physical infrastructure. It's not just people half-assing their jobs or, or just doing the bare minimum to maintain what's going on, you know, and, and who knows if they're even doing that. It's not just that. It's also the digital infrastructure that I I I both worry about it and I wonder about it because because we are so reliant on digital technology. And I'm not even talking about electricity because there was a lot of concern last year when Coronavi hit and there were these riots. A lot of people were concerned, like, what if electricity goes down? What if the internet goes down? I'm not even thinking so much of those resources as part of the infrastructure, although they are. Although those are still more physical. You know, the servers or the... You know, whatever it is, whatever it is that keeps everything powered, that's still a very a physical resource. What I'm talking about specifically, though, is just the way that digital platforms even work. You know, I've, I've complained a lot on here about how social media got away from chronological view, how very little is chronological. And even when you choose the chronological setting, you quickly realize that not everything is showing up chronologically and things are missing. And that's never been fixed, you know, and, and it's true across platforms, which is fascinating. It's not just that Twitter has some shitty code and as a result, their chronological view isn't truly chronological. It's that you go to Facebook and it's the same thing. Instagram is just an absolute mess in that regard. Like if you don't go to Instagram for a few days, who knows what what order you're going to see things in. And so that's become just an accepted standard is that the default view, almost dropped something, uh, the default, the default view entropy, uh, the default view is non-chronological. And so you, chances are you have to find whatever setting it is and some platforms bury it, but you have to find whatever setting it is to see things based on what's new. But then you realize that's not even working perfectly. And the fact that it happens across all platforms when it's the most easiest thing to set up and it's the way all websites were forever. That's strange to me. And I do see that as something highly conspiratorial because it gives people an out when you can't see things. Like if a certain person's posts aren't showing up and you are like, why is that happening? It's like those companies always have an out because they can just be like, oh, it's the algorithm. It's the supernatural, mysterious algorithm that we created. And so I feel like it's, it definitely aids in censoring content. 
But the digital infrastructure and, and the, the entropy of digital infrastructure isn't necessarily the censorship. Because I've already accepted that. The, that ship has sailed. Like worrying about whether Google is censoring search results or tailoring search results. Like that ship has sailed. I've already accepted that that's happening and has been happening and it's only gotten worse. So I've already accepted that. But, you know, I've had this experience recently, like doing the writing I've been lately. I've been using Google Maps to try to figure out the distance between certain locations or just get a feel for places that I've written about. And it's been an absolute mess lately, you know, because I, I, I never remember having any issues with it. But I'll type in a city, like let's just use an example of a city I've never been to, but it involved something I was researching and writing about, which is the city Utica, New York. It's a city in western New York, Utica. And so I, I typed in Utica and it took me to the right city. It took me to Utica, New York. But I wanted to find out the distance between Utica and Rome, New York. And Rome, New York is another city nearby. They're both in western New York. They're closely associated because they're, I, mean, I think they neighbor each other. They're very close. And so I went to directions. And so Utica was in there already because that's where I was. And I went to type in Rome. And I always remember it just filling in with the nearest city named Rome. Like even though there's a much more famous, I don't know if you've heard of it, but there's a much more famous city called Rome in Italy. But not only did it not fill in with Rome, New York, it didn't even fill in with Rome, Italy. It filled in with like, it, and this is just like how, how it's been working lately. It's like, I don't even remember what it suggested, but it was something like, oh, it suggested a cafe called Rome in Lithuania or something. That's been my experience lately. It's like, I want to find directions from Utica to Rome, New York. They're right next to each other. Google, Google used to be able to guess that because they're nearby. Now it like, it doesn't even just pick up a different Rome, it takes you to like some store called Rome in another country. And this has, been, this has happened repeatedly lately. And I don't remember it happening before that. And I, I thought it was just me. I thought, oh, maybe, maybe there's something up with my geolocation. Maybe it's my computer. Because that's your first, because that's the thing, that's the interesting thing about having worked in IT. There's a view that everybody's stupid. And even when you screw up, you can still blame people because they don't know better. You pretty much have this ace card in any kind of tech support where you can just say, it's on your end. And I've had that happen. It's funny how often this has happened with Comcast where I'll, my internet will be down or I'm having some kind of issue. And I'm talking to tech support through message on the, you know, because you can still like even when your internet's down, you can still access hotspots and like log into Comcast somehow, you know. So anyway, I was talking to him and I'm like, yeah, I'm having this problem, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, hmm, we don't see anything on our end. And they're like, check now. And then you check right then and it's fixed. So it's like, clearly they fixed something on their end. I don't feel like this is paranoid thinking. They don't want to admit that they were at fault. Like the company probably told them, like, don't, if you can avoid it, don't admit that there's anything wrong on our end. And then just fix it and tell them to check now. And that's happened to me multiple times. If it was just once, I'd be like, huh, that's an interesting coincidence. But it's happened to me multiple times where they're like, check now. And sure enough, right when they tell me to check now is right when the internet starts working again. So you can always blame things on the user. 
And that's sort of internalized in us. Like even somebody like me who grew up with computers and the internet, who feels comfortable just going in. Cause I mean, when I worked with older people, people who are like over the age of 50, and this is years ago, I mean, people, 50 year olds now are probably different, but like people who were in their mid fifties, like 10 or 15 years ago, I found that they were terrified to do anything on computers. Like I worked with a woman, incredibly smart. She wrote a book, but she was terrified of the computer. Like she didn't know what she was doing. And she was convinced that anything, she was afraid to click on anything or do anything because she was convinced that she would break it. And I had to tell her, I was like, you know, you're probably not going to break it just by clicking on the internet icon. But somehow those are the same people that managed to get viruses. Like even though they're the most afraid, it's almost like their fear. Here's new age for you. It's almost like their fear transmits itself into the computer. And just like how they say, like, if you don't show fear to a dog, he won't bite you. It's almost like these older people who are terrified of computers, like that fear goes into the computer and makes them more susceptible to viruses because they are incredibly cautious. Yet somehow they managed, even at work, their home computers, they still managed to get viruses. They still managed to get fished or whatever they call it. It's just interesting. It's like the people who are the most scared and, and most reluctant to actually do anything on their computers somehow are the ones who also screw the computers up. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like going into a date saying like, I know I'm going to fuck this up. I know I'm going to fuck this up like I always do. And then you go to the date and sure enough, you fuck it up and you're like, see, I fucked it up. But it's like your fear and your anxiety just manifested that reality. <laughs> I feel like that happens with computers because supernatural stuff does happen through computers or as I call it natural stuff. But still, that happens like you can experience synchronicity through computers. I mean, it's just another medium. If you think a house can be haunted. So can a computer. They're both different stages of technology, but they're both technology. But with this Google thing, it's only been recently that Google Maps has been doing this. And I had to do a bunch of it for this project because a lot of it's geographical in nature. And so I'm like trying to figure out the distances between places, how long it takes to get from one place to another. But I'm finding that it, it just defaults to assuming that I want to go to some place that's on the other side of the world rather than the place that's next door to the place that I'm currently at. I don't know. It's just, there's something weird with that. And then what's interesting too, is I, I have noticed issues with Google search itself. Lady Google's search engine has not been returning accurate results for me. And this goes beyond the whole, like some things are censored now or their algorithm is tailored to emphasize certain sites, certain pages. Just the whole thing is messed up and I'm having an extremely difficult time finding what I want to find, even when I've already been there and I know it exists. It's not like I'm just looking for new stuff, like even stuff that I know that I'm looking for and that I've been able to find using Google search in the past. But now it's become more difficult. And I'm actually seeing a lot of people mention this very recently. And it makes me go, huh, is something going on? Because it doesn't seem entirely nefarious. Like it doesn't, I, I don't really see what the end game is of Google making its primary service difficult. I mean, that's what all companies do. Companies get in their own way all the time and screw things up, which is why we, that's the reason why we've seen a lot of tech companies come and go or fall out of prominence. I mean, you think about MySpace, you know, I wasn't some big MySpace user, but I had one. 
And there was a certain point where it just started getting broken all the time. Like you started to experience load times constantly. Things weren't loading. There were issues all the time. And sure enough, that was the end of it. You go to a website and it doesn't work properly and it doesn't, it's a major company and it doesn't seem to get fixed. Like something went terribly wrong <laughs> with MySpace's infrastructure. I was just talking to somebody recently about there was a website, sort of in 2007 because it was when Virginia Tech happened, but there was a, a website called My Dead Space and it was a website with just links to people's MySpace profiles who had died. And it seemed weird at the time because it was a lot of young people. And the reason why I associated it with Virginia Tech is because some of the victims' profiles had been posted there. And it added this whole new human component to a mass shooting, for example, where it's like you got that because normally like a mass shooting, yeah, you might hear some of the names, like some of the people who died in Columbine, some of the Columbine victims, because like their dads were activists, you know, I think one of them was in bowling for Columbine. Because of that, you kind of heard their names and saw their faces and, and Columbine too, every aspect of that became iconic in some strange way. Like everything from mur the murderers to the victims to the location, you know, Columbine was just, you know, the iconic. And, and even these like newer school shooters, they always invoke the names Eric and Dylan. They don't say like, oh, the Virginia Tech killer, Hong Soi, Hung Su Choi, you know, they don't, they don't bring his name up. They always say, I did this for Eric and Dylan, the martyrs. You got to get better heroes than that. But, uh, you know, with this My Dead Space thing, well, Virginia, yeah, Virginia Tech, uh, you know, like aside from Columbine, where it seems like every single aspect of that was constantly in the media, including the victims, including their identities. But no matter how many times someone says, like, we need to make this about the victims and not the killer, we got to forget about the killer. Because that's kind of another form of like the, oh, you shouldn't be interested in Hitler. Like you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you know too much about World War II. It's like that, it's like a, a different version of that is like saying like, oh, you shouldn't be interested in the killer. And it's like, come on, like I do, I agree that the, the victims are the people that we should be extending our, our um, sympathy toward, their families. Like I understand like putting them front and center, but it's like, it's just, we're the most interesting people in this situation are the killers, period. Not interesting, good, interesting, bad. But that's what I was talking about in that one of the one one of the Hitler episodes was just that it's like since when is being interested in something an endorsement of it? And so while I myself like I read about Columbine a little bit, but it wasn't my thing. Like even though I was into true crime and serial killers, I have very little interest in those kind of hot blooded. They're hot blooded outbursts. And what always interested me about serial killers is that it's much more predatory and cold-blooded. And it's drawn out. These angry young men in hot, having hot-blooded, violent outbursts it just never appealed to me. I, I never appealed to that sort of outcast or, or that, that idea of the outcast getting his revenge has never obviously never appealed to me. But even then, I'm not even that interested in the people themselves. Like, I've never read a book about a school shooter. Not say, you're not saying you shouldn't. I've just never been interested myself in that. But you should be able to. 
you know, you should be able to read a book about Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. I myself have very little interest in that. But uh, school shooters. <laughs> Um, but with the Virginia Tech thing, that was kind of eye-opening because some of the victims ended up on my dead space. I bet that site's dead. I mean, my space is dead, pretty much. My dead space is probably dead. But seeing these kids who got killed, like, it was eye-opening for me because I clicked on one of the profiles and it was this young guy who was my age. You know, I was around that age at the time. And he was a Sodom fan. He was into metal. Like there was a picture of him. I think he was in a Sodom shirt. And he was he was into just like thrashy death metal, black metal. You know, he was in he was just he was into that kind of music. I think he was probably into like Hyrax. And it made me really sad. You know, I remember I still remember looking at his profile and just, you know, you could you really got a feel for who this person was, you know, as much as MySpace could give you. But still, like seeing the, the bands he was into, like seeing what he looked like, you know, he wasn't some ultra serious metalhead, but he's just he's a kid in college who wears Sodom shirts and he likes metal. And then to think that the person who killed him was this mute, this strange mute guy who... His roommates said, listen to the same collective soul song over and over again. He only listened to that over and over again. He was just kind of this blank sheet of paper with a desire to kill people. And one of the people he killed was a guy who was into metal, who was into black metal, death metal. It was just weird. It was a weird experience. I still remember seeing that profile, but yeah, the website was My Dead Space. But anyway, uh, you know, going back to MySpace, I don't have too much to say about it, but it was just a clear example of like when digital infrastructure just falls apart for an individual site. And that's happened many times. Sometimes all it takes is like going to a website five times, two times, and each time you go, there's something off. Or websites love to update their layouts. They love to update their designs to stay fresh. But sometimes staying fresh involves developing a horrible user interface. And that's always funny to me. Like when a website, it might not have the best user interface, but people go there. It's popular. So it shows that that's not really impeding it. And then they decide to update it with a modern interface to stay hip with the times. And that actually kills their company. And that happens all the time. And what people need to realize about that, like, if you've ever been on meetings where like things like that are discussed, where people are discussing like updating a layout, updating like a user interface, they're often basing it on what's the trend right then. Like very rarely, like and a lot of times the current trend is functional. Like when people started transitioning to mobile phones to look at the internet more often, it's like that obviously caused every website in the world to have to update to, to come up with a, a mobile version or even update their stand, the standard version of their site to be more quote-unquote mobile friendly. I think Batman's looking for some food here. You want some food? Um, but you, I, I've been in meetings and stuff before, and, and you know I think this is just something you can probably intuit just being a person, where it's like people are, are like, oh, we should do this because it's what other people are doing. Like this is the current, and I mean this happened with, like when every single website decided to have a giant image like including news articles 
but like the homepage of every website and then just news articles, everything decided to have like this huge image that's embedded in the background and then big dark text on a white background. I understand people say that it's easier to read that way. Like, oh, it's easier to read black text on white. But still, you started to see this like incredible designs became more and more homogenous. Like as the internet has become more centralized, design has become more homogenous and it's all done under the guise of functionality. But in reality, a lot of those meetings in, involve very little functionality and they tend to focus a lot more on doing what other people are doing. Like, oh, look what so-and-so did. And, you know, going back to the idea that a lot of people are just trying to justify having a job where they don't do stuff very much. One of the ways of dealing with that is meetings and throwing out ideas that don't need to be thrown out because how else are you going to show that you belong there? How, how else are you going to show that you're working if you don't throw out random hair-brained ideas and you don't have meetings all the time? You know, those, that's the way that some of these jobs kind of justify their existence is they have a lot of meetings, they plan a lot of things, and a lot of those plans are based on ideas that don't actually need to be implemented, but people have to justify why they're there. And so there's a lot of unnecessary change that goes on. And I'm not some expert, you know, I've, I have worked a little bit in that industry, but I, w I wouldn't say I know everything or anything. I'm not coming from a place of expertise. I'm just, just on a basic, just human level observing this. Like, I'm just like, you know, the reason we're not doing this for the, for the right reason. And as a result, it could actually really damage things. So that's all it takes. All it takes, I mean... Somebody can be a devoted fan of something and all it takes is one bad experience. You know, that happens with TV. Where it's like all sometimes one bad episode, one bad season can just ruin an, an entire show because it just leaves a bad taste in your mouth. That negativity bias is real. It's unavoidable. And no matter how much you love something, if something is bad, it taints the whole thing. And, you know, that's how I'm feeling with Google. I'm like, hmm, you know, realistically, like if this is going to be an issue, whether it's an issue, because I mean, they, they got the best programmers in the world. You know, what's great about Google. They got the, bre the best programmers in the world. But what happens when they half-ass their jobs? Like, because you think about like websites, it's like, oh, if something goes wrong, there's somebody who gets called immediately and they fix it. And I, don't, I doubt there's going to be much issue with that. So many people work in that industry. It, it's... I can't imagine there are going to be that big of issues with that. But I almost wonder on some level, like, what happens when the algorithm gets out of control? Because you think about, like, how chaotic the Internet started, like how, how chaotic the Internet was when I got on it, where it's like everybody had separate web pages. Everything was loosely connected. There were a bunch of different search engines that all gave you different results. You had to manually submit your website to those search engines. They didn't just crawl. So it was very chaotic, but at the same time, it's amazing, like, despite all of the chaos of the internet, and despite, like, the, the potential for code to get broken, for the internet to go down, it's amazing how structured and consistent it's been. But that all, almost makes me nervous, because we know that everything can go awry. Like, a machine that is built can work perfectly for you know, a significant amount of time, even if you maintain it. And all it takes is one little part going wrong and that can set off a chain reaction. 
And with these things like algorithms that kind of take on a life of their own, whether they do or not, you know, obviously they're programmed to function in a certain way, but it's almost like, it's, it's like the fear of AI. You know, our fear of AI is that it'll start doing things on its own, which is actually what we try to make it do. But still, our concern is that it's going to start doing things on its own and, it, and the things it's, it's going to do are going to be bad. I have those concerns too. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about AI, but I do, I do nothing to encourage it. It's about all I can do. But with that in mind, like, you know, I've, I've said many times on here how we tend to think of that sort of AI or technology turning against us, sci-fi storyline. We tend to think of it being very grandiose, kind of like we think of the apocalypse being this one big moment. Like, oh, uh, the computer is uh, locking me out and telling me, fuck you. And there's Terminator exoskeletons with machine guns walking down my street, wasting humans. You know, we tend to think of it in those terms, but it's like, what about the idea that it just slowly and gradually screws with you? And when I talked about this before, I always use the example of CAPTCHA, a word I hate. CAPTCHA, but it's it's the word. You know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about when I say CAPTCHA. But with CAPTCHA, like, I see CAPTCHA... As a very, that's AI winning a very significant battle. That's the robots winning a very significant battle. The fact that every single website, every single form has to have a CAPTCHA that says, verify you're not a robot. And somehow that, that's protected from the robots. Allegedly, that's, that protects you from the robots. And Google owns it. I didn't realize that until I did my website redesign this year. I didn't realize that CAPTCHA wasn't something you could just code yourself. I mean, you can code your own version of it, but the actual CAPTCHA form that you see on every website is owned by Google. And you have to submit, I'm trying to remember what they ask you to submit. You have to submit your URL, but you have to insert their code onto your page. So Google, in theory, knows every single time someone sends you something. And because their code is on your page, I mean, I, and they and the, you're required to complete this CAPTCHA, like, in theory, they know who's contacting you. I don't know. It's, I don't, I don't want to get conspiratorial about it, but I mean, I just default to that when it comes to tech. Tech. So that, I raised an eyebrow at that. I was like, I didn't realize that Google has attached themselves to every single contact form on the internet and wherever else CAPTCHA is used. Every time you, you fill out a form, actually, it's not just sending an email through an online form. It's also anytime you complete any kind of form, anytime you register, chances are you're asked to use CAPTCHA. So just through that alone, Google must be getting some interesting information. I don't know how specific it would be, but they're getting something from that. They're getting even just raw data, numbers, something. But with CAPTCHA, like I see CAPTCHA as a big win for the robots in our battle with them that we don't even know we're fighting yet because they forced us to put that on our pages. And the fact that Google controls it definitely, uh, you know, that raises some eyebrows. But just getting away from Google, just the idea that they forced us to do that. And humans are behind it. You know, you trace it all back to humans. 
but these are these robots that will just complete your form. They'll, they'll fill out your forms. They'll send you spam. They'll register accounts. Like if, if someone runs a forum, there's robots just creating accounts all day. Like a friend of mine runs an organized crime forum and he has to keep registration very limited and strict because it's just robots. There's just robots making accounts. And the fact that we had to implement these CAPTCHA forms to keep them out, whether they keep them out or not is another question, but just that we had to try. That seems like a big win for them. And then when you see that like something like Google Maps isn't working as well as it used to, or Google search results aren't, lady lady Google search results, she's not returning the best results anymore. Hasn't for a long time, but it's gotten substantially worse. And when you see that, a part of me goes like, hmm, is, is this a conspiracy on the part of Google? Is this just chaos? Is this just digital entropy? Or is the algorithm developing its own functions? Because think about that. Like, think about if an algorithm, and you know, I don't even know if I understand what an algorithm is. It's, it's, that became a household word. You, you'll hear like 85-year-old women today be like, it's those algorithms. Somehow that became a household word. But still, it's like something in the code, you know, it's like, would it be impossible for that to mutate? All kinds of things are going on. And we've had a lot of digital stability. Considering everything that we've done, considering how much chaos there has been digitally, it's kind of amazing that something catastrophic hasn't happened to the infrastructure of the internet or the infrastructure of some major service like Google. And yeah, this is late night. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not out to prove anything. I'm just, it just makes my mind go places. I go, huh, you know, something's weird and other people are noticing it. I'm noticing it. Something feels off. Something feels broken. That's reflected in society as well. Doesn't matter if it's digital, physical, mental. I, I just feel like sometimes the best you can do is managed entropy. Sometimes the most you can hope for is just to not let the AI kill you in one fell swoop when the drones and these new robots they're developing that can like jump over buildings. You know, the most you can hope for is that they don't just turn their guns on us all of a sudden. You just have to hope that even the AI war is gradual. But of course it would be. Of course, like the AI, whether it intends to or not, but of course, it would just kind of subtly twist things. And then you'll have moments where you go, oh, something's broken. My dead space. My dead internet. My dead digital domain. My dead country. No, I don't see it that way. I don't I'm not worried about this country dying. I'm just uh I'm not even actually too worried about any of this. I'm just kind of observing it. I'm not too worried. I'm just kind of watching it. I think that's all you can do. That's that's the motto of 
manage entropy. It's, I can't really do much, so I'm just going to watch. Do what I can to do the same. As above, so below. As we manage the fall into disorder on a national level, on a global level, we got to manage our own individual fall into disorder too. And you, you know, and you might not end up there. We probably won't end up there. But sometimes there's something kind of liberating about thinking that way. Like as long as you don't get too caught up in the gloom and you continue to look for opportunities, because I mean, what that is, it's sort of that catabasis that I always talk about. That's sort of what managed entropy is. Like that's like when I talk about going into a mode of cat of catabasis, cannabasis sounds like cannabis. You know, when I when I go into a mode of catabasis where it's like, oh, I'm I'm feeling like I'm going into a darker place. For other people, it's depression. I don't use words like that. Like I just it, for me, it's just an acknowledgement that I'm feeling kind of you know low and dark, and that's catabasis. That's the descent into hell. But when you do that, you have to look for the anabasis, which is the ascent. And I feel like it's the same thing with managed entropy. Like managed entropy would be, okay, we're going down. We're descending. But we're going to try to do it. We're going to acknowledge it. We're going to be aware of it. And while we're down there, we're going to look for opportunities to come back out. That's exactly the point I was making looking at the climbing gym wall where it's like, Okay, we're going to have to retrace our steps and climb back down the wall and try to find another route up. But we're going to be looking for that route up. That's kind of how I see it. And that's an approach you can take personally. It's an approach you can take as an entire group of people. But it takes people acknowledging the decline, which some aren't willing to acknowledge. And then you have people fighting over the reasons for the decline or what is actually declining or what takes priority. So you can see where it already becomes its own mess. This is not a utopian vision that I have. It's like, oh, I think we should fix this bridge. Yeah, but more, more people use that bridge. But I like this bridge more. So you end up fighting over like which things to maintain, which things to fix. But if you're looking to avoid conflict, uh, this species isn't for you. Actually, most mammals aren't for you. <laughs> if, if, if conflict is what you're worried about, this species probably isn't the species for you. Because we manage to find conflict one way or another. But if you don't see it as the end all, you can just kind of write it out. And, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of what it comes down to is you write it out. So like, I'm going into a catabasis, I'm going to write it out, but I'm going to be looking for opportunities to ride up and out. And I, myself, I don't feel like I'm personally in one right now. I feel like whatever catabasis I may be in or entering in the near future is just kind of a, a symptom of everything going on. I don't feel that I personally am in a dark place. But you never know. It could be tomorrow. It could be the next day. You can't be afraid of it. That's why you, you know, that Buddhist idea of not being attached to the good. 
because when you're attached to the good, you're more likely to be attached to the bad. So just rest in that neutrality. And then, you know, it's less devastating when you go from good to neutral. And it's even less devastating when you go from neutral to bad. And that's managed entropy in a nutshell. It's like if we are descending, let's get to that mid-level point first. Let's spend as much time in the gray area in between as possible. Rather than just crashing, rather than going from black to white, let's just hang out in the gray area for as long as possible. Let's just, instead of skydiving, let's use a parachute. Children can run free.